Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. BB here. Sorry if you can hear the rain outside my window. It won't be this way for the rest of the episode. It's just during this little intro snippet that I'm recording. Today we have a very special episode with Joe Trace, who is a member of the writer's room and is also the book writer of the Lightning Thief musical, Um, which means, before we get into it, spoiler warning, for all of the Percy Jackson and the Olympians and Heroes of Olympus, we've got some spoilers for Heroes of Olympus in this episode, and for the Lightning Thief musical if you've never seen it. We will talk about all three of those things throughout this episode. So if you haven't seen the musical or you haven't read Heroes of Olympus or you're not quite done with the Percy Jackson series, this is your warning to maybe come back to this episode another time. But if that's not you or you don't care about spoilers, hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Emily, a classic scholar-ish. And I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And today we have a very special guest with us, Joe Trace, who is um, a member of the Percy Jackson Season 1 Writer's Room, credited with uh, writing episodes 4 and 6 of the TV show, and also the book writer for the Percy Jackson musical which is so exciting. We're huge fans of both adaptations you have done, and so we're so excited to get to talk to you today. (laughs) I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much. I have to tell you, I mean, before we started uh, recording, I was already telling you what a big fan I was of the musical, but I do also have to tell you that when they first announced the writer's room for the show, I was so excited that you were in there because I knew that, you know, not only had you worked on an adaptation of the book already, but you were a longtime fan of the series beforehand, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I came to the musical as a fan. So, you know, it was, you know, a huge honor to get to join the staff of the show as well and, and have the very surreal experience of adapting the same book twice in two <laughs> totally different mediums. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to Percy Jackson originally? Yeah, I, you know, so I, even though I was too old to be a middle school student when the books were coming out, I worked in the uh, YN middle grade section of a bookstore after college. And that was around the time that Percy Jackson was coming out the Lemony Stickett series was coming out, like all these books that I would then go on to get to work on. Uh, I first discovered just as a bookseller being like, wow, people really sure seem to love these uh, these Percy Jackson books. I think the Sea of Monsters had just come out because I remember mm. like in the break room, 
when you'd get like the sort of the, the ARCs, advanced reader copies, um, there was one of Sea of Monsters and I picked it up. I was like, oh, this book looks, looks so cool. I was like, oh wait, no, it's a sequel. I got to read the first one first. So um, yeah, I read and then I would read them all as they were coming out and, and just really loved them. You know, just, you know, both like Rick's voice as an author um, and just the, the, you know, what these series does in terms of taking this mythology and finding this modern day language to retell these stories in this fun and exciting way. That's awesome. You've, I didn't realize that you had been reading them since they were like, like the early, early days, like Sea of Monster days. Yeah, I wish I'd kept that. I wish I'd kept that ARC because I feel like yeah. it's probably worth something now. It probably is. Oh, <laughs> Do you remember what the cover looked like? Was it just like a blank one or did it have something cool on it? You know, I think it was the, the original cover with the giant monster eye. Mm. Oh, wow. So they got the art early. Yeah, I think think it was. But yeah, that was, I mean, quite some time ago. So so I think you technically got to the books before Phoebe did then. And she, to, at least in the people I know, she read them the earliest because I think Sea of Monsters was her first one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. You just beat me. Or, or her, that was the one that had come out most recently. <laughs> you know, what's what's funny is that I always said, like, when the movies would come up, I would often say that, like, even though I thought a film adaptation of these books could work. I always thought that like theater and TV seemed uniquely suited to tell Percy's story in certain ways. And now you've done both. So I'm curious what makes Percy Jackson work in these mediums, in your opinion? Well, first of all, you might be the only fan of the books who was like, I think theater would work. And obviously you work in theater, so <laughs> you're coming to it from that perspective. But, you know, I remember when, um, you know, when we first announced that we were doing a, a musical adaptation of the show, of, of, the, of the books, uh, you know, the, the like, internet outrage for, like, <laughs> how dare Percy Jackson become musical uh, was, uh, you know, sort of painful slash funny to watch unfold in real time. But, um, you know, I found out when I, you know, so I, you know, I, I worked in a bookstore after college where I fell in love with all these great YN middle grade series um, and, and just really love that, you know, I, I love stories about those transitional years because, like, I do feel there are, especially today, there's so few experiences that we all share, but the experience of coming of age is like one of those universal experiences. You know, you have been a 12-year-old, you are a 12-year-old, or you will be a 12-year-old. So there's something universal about telling stories about that age group. Um, and it's a time in your life when you're really sort of exiting the view of the world you've got as a child through your parents, through the authority figures in your life, and sort of discovering the world for yourself. So I think something I really loved in, in, in Percy's story was that you know in a world where the authority figures are the literal greek gods you have this like epic metaphor to tell a coming of age story and so you know i i've always responded to that um and that's one of the reasons why i love those books so much but it's also in my own writing when i then sort of went on to you know i went to nyu for grad school for dramatic writing film tv and theater and i found that kind of story was a story that often i was telling so um mm. when i found out that um TheaterWorks USA was looking for a, a writer to adapt um, The Lightning Thief into a, a, a one-hour uh, show. At the time, not a musical, just a play. Um, you know, it, not only was I excited as a fan of the books, but I also felt like it was the kind of story I'd been trying to tell over and over again. Um, and and so I, I put myself up a job and and uh, had to to prove my uh, uh, <laughs> prove myself in the in the job interview for it. And thank God for that. <laughs> thank you for your service. <laughs> Certainly back in, I think, 2011, 2012, I certainly had no idea that um, I would still be adapting The Lightning Thief um, to this day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I actually, 
I wanted to ask because, um, so like as a writer, I know that constraints sometimes can actually be like the best thing ever in terms of coming up with really creative solutions to problems. And so knowing that like you originally adapted the Lightning Thief musical for like a very bare bones production that was sort of designed to be performed in like libraries or small theaters, um, I was actually wondering if like you learned anything in that process that you like find yourself still bringing into the TV show even. Is there anything that really stuck with you that, that from that original adaptation process that you kind of have brought forward? I mean, part of the fun of joining the TV show writer's room was that, you know, at least in those initial writer's room conversations, budget and cast size wasn't a limit. You know, I think l- later on, you know, as, as always happens in TV production and because, you know, writers wear producer hats as well in TV. So at a certain point, you know, whether it's you or whether John or Dan as the showrunners are making those decisions and saying, you know what, we can't include this character. You know, we, we, we you know, we have to consolidate this stuff, um, you know, th- but at least the fun of the those first few months in the writer's room were like after thinking about this book in with like these limited constraints for so long to get to like unshackle those and be like, hey, Mr. D and Grover don't have to be the same actor, so they can be in a scene together. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I will say the constraints, you know, certainly like, you know, one of the things that was challenging about that initial one hour version of the show that we wrote, that the, the, the musical was, you know, wanting to be as faithful to the books as possible, while also recognizing that like, you know, the set had to be a set that could be packed in the back of a van, because this show was built to, as you said, TheaterWorks USA, takes, um, you know, they do a lot of adaptation of, of, of kids' books, and then those things are cast with New York actors, you know, you rehearse them in New York, but then you go out in a van and it's like, you know, four to six college students and a stage manager with a set that like you can like put up within half an hour that you do, you know, you know, it's, it, you know, it, it is school lunch break. Um, so, you know, even having six characters in, in, in the original version of it, was like a lot for theater works because that was I think the most they'd ever had uh, in, in a cast on stage and mm. and that was just recognizing they're like okay yeah we know this is going to be a challenge so you're going to get to have six people and it's like well okay yeah six people playing the entire cast of a you know 280 page uh, fantasy novel is still challenging but it did lead to some really fun I, you know I, I do love having limitations um, and you do get creative problem solving that ends up sometimes having really fun side effects yeah no we were just talking about that last night we were talking about how you were able to use the multi-casting to your advantage because everyone is playing so many characters that you're able to like do these fun little things like you know it means that you can have luke's actor in luke's voice clearly playing luke as the figure speaking to chronos and percy's dream yeah. the audience still has no reason to think anything of that i was like you're like, oh, that actress is playing some other character. Incredible <laughs> use of the medium. <laughs> well, it's fu- it's fun because you know the actor who plays Luke also plays Gabe and the Minotaur and Ares. So yeah. you know, if you're watching the musical, even if you even before you get to the reveal, if you don't know the books, and obviously we can spoil stuff in here because yes, <laughs> um, we all know how the life ends. You know, even before you get to that reveal, like that actor, you've seen him play Luke and all the monsters and bad guys. So there's like that sense of there's something maybe not right about him, even when he's being charismatic and charming and this like cool mm-hmm. older brother figure. Um, so it is one of the fun things of double casting is that, you know, even though part of it is just a function of necessity because like, well, who else is on stage to play that role? You know, you can do it intentionally in a way that maybe sends subtle clues to the audience, even if they're not consciously picking up on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really cool. And it's something I think that comes out with all the adult characters too, because I think they kind of tend to stick to just playing the adults as well, with some exceptions. 
Um, so you kind of get that sense of like, oh, they're the kids, and then there's you know all the forces that they're kind of like struggling through. <laughs> or yeah. um, for better or for worse, you know, with the case of like Sally, who's a very helpful adult figure, but then um, others as well. Yeah, well, the fact that you know Sally plays, you know, and at least in the hour-long version where we didn't have some of these extra campers, Katie Gardner and Selena, we cut, we got to add in when we were expanding the show. But you know, initially, yeah, it was you had Percy, Annabeth, and Grover, and then you had Luke slash monsters. You had adult men and adult women, and it was like, yeah, those are the kind of like you know the, the six archetypes. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I when I say that I I thought that theater was a perfect medium for Percy Jackson. It was always me thinking like, oh, well, a Percy style internal monologue through like asides or through songs, like he could actually address his audience and keep them as an active part of the story like they are in the book. Um, So that was why I was excited to see it as theater. But I was also thrilled to see it as television, probably also kind of the dramaturg in me talking, but I, I feel like it gives you the space to expand on the story and spend time in scenes and conversations that you just wouldn't that just wouldn't work at the pace that like a film or a musical has to move at. Like television is a medium where you can tell the story from the book, but can also, you know, and then some, and you can explore new pathways through the story to move through and have the room to justify that. Like, I, I think you guys did it expertly in episode four, actually. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of structure and, and, and just like, you know, what I love about different mediums is the way different structures just sort of guide you towards telling the story in a specific way. So, you know, a TV series, you know, the structure, it's episodes. And, you know, we really worked hard in the writer's room to make each episode feel like, even though it's part of a continuing serialized story, like it had a thematic or emotional uh, arc within each episode. So, you know, episode four being the episode that's really about um, the kid's relationship to their godly parents. You know, and that that idea of parents is, is obviously was, you know, a natural fit for that chunk of the book because of course you have echidna who's the mother of monsters you have a villain who's going to make you confront issues of what a good parent does you know but it's also the point in the quest where the three kids have bonded but now they're you know out in the world and really percy's forced to think about his absent father for the first time you know and what it means to have an absent father who's a god and he's hearing annabeth who is you know wearing the t-shirt as you would say in the room, she's, you know, all in on the world of the gods. Mm-hmm. You know, you start that episode with Percy saying, you know, I think it, this is this is bullshit, my parents. Uh, you know, my, my dad has never been there for me. Annabeth saying, you know, your par- our godly parents, you know, may not be there for us, but they're there when we need them. And then at the end of the episode, those perspectives are flipped because Annabeth has appealed to her mom for help only to be rejected. Whereas Percy, who doesn't believe his father will ever help him, does find that in the moment of crisis, um, Poseidon steps in and saves the day. Yeah, that's what I absolutely love about that episode is the way that you were able to turn it into like this meditation on parenthood and all of those family themes. Um, because I remember when we talked about the lightning thief on the podcast, that was kind of the main thing that we talked about when it, we got to the arch because that chapter started with Annabeth revealing this really tragic story about um, her father while like continuing to display this very intense faith in her mother. And then the chapter ended with Percy having to confront his own relationship with his father. And so that was what we talked about when we got to the arch. And then the way that you were able to expand on that by like actually spending time with Echidna and giving that incredible speech on what a good mother is. And then also adding in the Athena stuff um, with Annabeth. 
And the Sally flashback at the beginning. I love the Sally flashback at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And again, so, you know, obviously we're talking about godly parents, but also human parents because Percy had the benefit of having a, a human parent who loved him unconditionally and let him know that she loved him unconditionally. Um, whereas Annabeth has a father who obviously as the books go on, that relationship develops and gets more complicated. But from the perspective she's entering that episode with, she feels like here's someone who chose someone else over me. And so she's mm -hmm. been rejected by, you know, her human father. And, you know, and then so because of that, she's placed all her eggs in the basket of Athena and saying, well, if I can't have this parent figure, at least this one will be proud of me. And I'm doing this to please this person, this parent. Um, and, uh, and and then, yeah, have, having that turned on its head by the end of the episode. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's what I love about TV is it does like, you know, in thinking about if we weren't looking at like that unit of structure, you know, saying, OK, here's an episode that, you know, we're kind of locked into. It's going to start with them on the train because that's the next thing that happens in the book. It's gonna end you know, with, with that arch scene because that's the big set piece. You know, what in there is the emotional train that we're treading? You know, um, that's going to be refracted in some way, reflected by the external stakes of the journey, Echidna and the arch dive. I really loved as well the way it was sort of used as an opportunity to flesh out a bit of Annabeth and Luke's relationship, like via Thalia as well, like bringing her into the story. I, it sparked a memory though, because I remembered when I watched the musical, uh, one of the scenes that really struck me um, when I saw it, um, I saw the first tour stop in New York. That was the first uh, production I saw. I remember that one moment between Luke and Annabeth at camp, like right before Capture the Flag, having a huge impression on me because I realized that was the first moment I'd seen in an adaptation where like it's not Percy's perspective anymore. And we're mm -hmm. getting like Annabeth's perspective and Luke's perspective on everything. I love that you bring that up because that was, you know, we, we, we were like, OK, we're breaking the rule. And, you know, um, Phoebe, you said about how theater is a good uh, medium for something like Percy because you get point of view, you can like have just like the book where Percy is talking to you, the reader, you know, in theater, there is a tradition of addressing the audience, both in monologue and song, which Percy does at both points in the musical. So, um, you know, it, it was from our perspective, a natural choice for adaptation, because you got to be first person Percy, just like you are in the book. But yeah, that moment, that was a sort of controversial moment we were writing it because it felt like we're only seeing Annabeth through Percy's eyes. And, you, you know, you experienced in the TV show as well is that especially in that second episode when Annabeth is sort of hovering on, around the edges of the story, you know, waiting for her grand entrance. But, you know, she's someone who Percy is like trying to get a read on. Um, you know, she does sort of hold herself at bay from Percy and thus from us. But yeah, that moment where Annabeth talks to Luke, which is like maybe like five lines, was a chance for us to sort of establish the dynamic that they have and Annabeth's perspective on Percy, um, which was a big thing when we were writing the musical. Um, the um, Heroes of Olympus series was coming out. I think Mark and Athena mm. had just come out when we were starting. <laughs> what, a <And> <laughs> what, a, what, what a time. What a time, you know? <laughs> uh, there's, you know, obviously like the, a cliffhanger at the end of that book that we were all waiting to find out what's going to happen, uh, which we like slightly like referenced in some in, 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 the, in lyrics of the early version of the show at some point. I remember, yeah. Um, I but uh, <laughs> yeah, but having Annabeth's point of view in those books, well, obviously Heroes of Olympus is the first time that Rick was writing Annabeth's point of view. And mm -hmm. so to be able to have those chapters in, Heroes of, in the Heroes of Olympus series to then go back and say, well, now we actually have a sense of what Annabeth was thinking when Percy got to camp that wasn't just Percy's version of that. You know, that, and that was a huge influence on why that moment between uh, Annabeth and Luke was added because it was a chance to sort of draw from a later book in the series to give a little additional shading to Annabeth as a character. That's so interesting. <laughs> because I also, I also think that, at least watching the show, I feel like episode four is kind of one where we get to 
break Annabeth open a little bit because like now she and Percy are no longer fighting and so we can actually start to understand Annabeth along with Percy. And so I I guess you've sort of answered it now a little bit, but how do you go about breaking Annabeth open like that since she is someone who is so resistant to kind of being broken open? Yeah, I mean, we always knew that, you know, that was going to be the episode where Annabeth and Percy would get to open up to each other in a new way because obviously in, in 102, in, in the second episode, you know, we're keeping her at bay from him. And, you know, part of that was, you know, I think really wanting to give Percy and Luke a real brotherly bond. Um, you know, obviously in the book, a lot of this stuff that happens when Percy gets to camp, a lot of the exposition about what capture the flag is, how camp functions, and Annabeth does provide that for him. Um, and then someone sort of just recalibrating that material and, and giving some that to Luke was about like knowing we're going to have many more episodes where it's just Percy, Annabeth, and Grover. We're going to get a chance for Percy and Annabeth to really get to know each other. In the second episode, the priority was Percy and Luke because they're not going to have another chance to bond. And for that mm. betrayal to land, we had to make sure we're building that up there. Um, but, you know, and that also led to well, by the end of episode two, Percy and Annabeth don't have that closeness yet. And earning that was a story of, of the third episode, you know, and, and you have a villain who, you know, is is her weapon. And of course, I say villain in quotes because obviously our version of Medusa has layers beyond just sort of the antagonist. She's she's an antagonist to her characters, but she's also someone who is often speaking truth. And the things she's saying are playing on the divide that a Poseidon a kid and an Athena kid are naturally going to have. And sort of, you know, you have at the start of the episode, Percy and Annabeth not trusting each other and an antagonist who's going to prey on that trust in order to get what she wants. Um, and yet they, you know, they have to come together in order to survive her. And by the end of the episode, they've earned a real trust for the first time. And so, you know, we always knew that, like, in the second episode, there's going to be a distance. The third episode, bridging that distance. The top of the fourth episode, a chance for the two of them to actually connect and for Percy to really find out who Annabeth is in her own words, not from what Luke says in, two, in the second episode, not from what Medusa says about the ch- children of Athena in the third episode, but from Annabeth herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but the content of that, you know, whether it was going to be at Talia, about, um, I still say Talia, even though we, <laughs> you, you, years ago when we were starting the musical, I had asked through uh, Rick's agent how to pronounce it, and Rick's agent had said Talia. And so it's <laughs> in my head. It's the, the, for the show, we chose a different way. I feel like they're both valid. Um, but I'm, you know, it's t- it's too late for me to unlearn. Um, <laughs> but you know what the content of that conversation was was a f- sort of a floating thing, and um, I think we tried various versions where sometimes it was more about telling the story of her her dad and her stepmom. You know, the t- sometimes it was the Thalia story. Um, you know, we kind of looked at, like what's the thing that feels right in this moment for her to open up to him, and uh, it, you know, I think because we were telling a story about parents telling that story of Annabeth from running away all the way through. Uh, Thalia's sacrifice, you know, felt like that was a chance to really get Annabeth's perspective on that. Yeah, I, we talked a little bit about it with um, with John because we were fascinated by the specific way that Thalia is portrayed and described in uh, from Annabeth's point of view, and then how it's like kind of thrown back at her from Percy's point of view. In that, you know, she's thinking like, of course Thalia did this, of course the world works like this, that kind of thing, and Percy's like, that's not that's not quite right <laughs> yeah yeah it's like hearing you know it's like you grow up a certain way and you, you know like you, you know you whether you know whatever household you grow up in there's probably things that are just feel like givens because that's what you're surrounded by and, and Annabeth because she's been in this world of camp and the world of God for so long you know she's going to look at things a certain way and Percy as an outsider his role is to sort of poke at that and say 
well, that doesn't sound like love or that doesn't sound like sacrifice or that doesn't, you know, to sort of challenge these assumptions that Annabeth holds so dearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember when we were first talking about the lightning thief, Phoebe, the way she described that relationship of the Grover, Annabeth, Thalia, Luke um, sort of blew my mind a bit where she was like, yeah, no, it's like Percy's basically stepping into like a family that has a ghost already that's haunting the whole book. Yeah. And I just thought that was so interesting to think about, too, because I like we said, the episode is so much about family. And it's not just like the adults in the family, but the found family, too, that gets brought in and questioned like this. I, I love that. Yeah, she, she really is the ghost hanging over that book. And, and obviously she then, you know, manifests in, 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 the, in the flesh and in, in books to come. But yeah, that, that, that sense of, you know, that story is so key to, you know, even, you know, it, it's obviously it's not Luke's sole motivation. Um, for aligning with Kronos, but it's it's part of that stew that makes Luke see this injustice that he feels nobody else is addressing and nobody else is speaking the truth, this truth to power or taking action. You know, it's in the musical we really do play that as um, you know because we don't get into the backstory of Luke's fa- home life uh, or Hermes as much. You know, in the musical we sort of made that choice to really take that uh, the I'm going to say it, um, Talia story uh, <laughs> and, and make that um, you know really key to what makes the musical version of Luke tick. Um, you know, when he can, he has his confrontation with Percy at the end and Annabeth in, in a choice that, you know, we also used for the, the the TV series where Annabeth is there and actually hears Luke's pitch to Percy, you know, uh, it, 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 certainly the musical uh, Talia is part of what he's saying, he's naming her as, you know, part of the reason why he's doing what he's done. Mm-hmm. And it's also, it's a, a massive part of how, what makes Grover tick too. Um, both in the musical and in yeah. the show, I'd say, because I I feel like in both of them, this this comes through very clearly to me how much grief and loss has shaped Grover as a character. And I think in the show, it's not just Thalia; it's also like the Pan quest and the the loss of both Pan and the Wild, and like just how many satyrs leave and never come back, which we we got to see with Uncle Ferdinand, but also with the addition of Augustus in episode six. Yeah, there's a sense of Grover as someone who is used to people disappearing. And, you know, yeah, as, a, as a satyr in an increasingly unnatural world, that is like part of that journey. But yeah, that, that like Dahlia is another, I'm just going to continue about book pronunciation. Yep. <laughs> uh, Dahlia is another, you know, g- ghost from his past, someone who, someone who's vanished, who's, you know, who's an important person to him that he, you know, feels he'll never see again. I would love actually to talk a little bit more about Grover, just because I, I've, Again, rewatching, I realize it's episode four and six. Those are the ones that we really introduce and lay out the like groundwork for the pan quests as well. And so I was, uh, I would love to hear more about like your approach to Grover as a character and like what kind of drives him uh, in the TV show, especially this version of Grover. Yeah, well, I'll say, you know, when I first joined the room, there was like, I, I had a list of like things that I had always wanted to do in the show, but never got to do. Mm. And for various reasons, time, pacing, you know, and one of those things uh, that did make it into the, into the series was um, seeing the centaurs um, from the train, yeah. which was one of those beautiful moments that just really always as a reader resonated with me. The sense of like seeing this last glimpse of the natural world pass by a train window. Um, and so that was always something I was like, I want to do the centaurs of the train. And then it became about like, what is what does that represent to our characters? You know, it ended up giving this opportunity for us to have a natural reason for Grover to speak about the sort of loss that satyrs feel, the absence of Pan, and the idea that these sort of mythic creatures who are, you know, connected to the natural beauty of the world are vanishing, um, and that's connected to this loss of Pan. So um, 
So I, I was I was so pleased at that moment, Nate and I, I think there probably are so many reasons why something like that could get cut for budget reasons. You know, it's like you're saving the money for the for the you know for the Camara for other things. But I was so happy that moment made it in, and, and it you know to me that is so important to Grover for Percy to see this little glimpse of the natural world, and Grover to say, yeah, that's that's going away, um, and that's this burden that I and all the other satyrs share mm. um, is feeling this loss. Yeah. Yeah, I love it, too, because there's, like, a fun little, like, because we see Percy seeing so much of the mythological world in the first episode, especially, like, from afar, so it's kind of nice to see that, but, like, reframed in a different way, where it's, like, no, this is, like, the thing that's actually, like, dying out. This is sort of a representation of, like, the things that we should be holding on to, but we're not, and so I I like that that kind of almost comes full circle in that moment, too. Yeah. And in the musical, you know, one of the first, as we were, you know, I, I think I mentioned, I first wrote the musical as a play, as an hour long play and quickly realized like, okay, no, there's like so much content here. You need songs to be able to both move through things quickly, but also like, you know, music can just like tell you how a character's feeling in ways that like long monologues sometimes struggle to do. So, you know, when we were then, when I, when Robert Kiki, who's incredible, or the composer lyricist of the musical joined, you know, as we were looking at what are the places for songs, one of the first things that he pitched was a folk song for Grover to tell the story of Talia mm-hmm. that, you know, and that, that, that became Tree on the Hill. And, and even though in different versions of the show, that song kind of shuffled around to different places, but I always felt it was really important to have Grover who I think can, you know, a, like a, a, a poor reading of the book just slots him in as a comic relief to break up tension between Percy and Annabeth, you know, but he has, you know, his own arc and his own grief and his own baggage that he's carrying. And so it was always important to us in in both the the musical and the series to be able to let Grover show that side of himself to Percy. Hmm. Yeah, that was one of the biggest moments in the show when I saw it where like, it was sort of like I'd gotten a bunch of moments, like of a line here or there or something where it'd be like pointing out a way the books were incredibly tragic, but like you never really <laughs> thought about it because you're you're a kid <laughs> when you read them. Yeah. And then the tree on the hill, I felt like was sort of the like um, the culmination of all of that. Like especially the moment I think in the bridge where he's like the tree, like everyone else, that protects everyone else. It represents my biggest failure. I was just like, oh. <laughs> yeah, and and sung so beautifully by by George Salazar and all the actors who have played Grover. The the actors in the show, at least the version I saw, were all like you could tell they understood their characters and they loved their characters so much. Yeah. Everyone was either, you know, if, if they weren't already a fan of the book, they were by the time they, by, by the time we got to the rehearsal period. And it was so funny to see, I think we just had like the box set on the um, table in the rehearsal room. And it was like, we had our own little mini library. People would just take them home and bring them back. And the books got so dog-eared. I think I have like, I have like seven copies of the Lightning Thieves because we kept losing them. And then like <laughs> Rick's team would send more. So we had more, or I'd like be like, somewhere and I'm like oh no I need to like I need to rethink a scene so I'd like go to the New York bookstore and like grab another copy so I literally I think one of these bookshelves uh, is like literally like half just copies of Lightning Thief (laughs) as it should be as it should be as all bookshelves should be (laughs) (laughs) yeah also speaking of um like the musical again one thing I I was curious was it just a happy coincidence that the two episodes you ended up writing sort of centered on events that were sort of sort of sped run through in the musical it was really fun. It definitely wasn't intentional. It was just sort of, you know, in the in the writer's room, you know, you're sort of you you know, you're you're breaking episodes and then sending an episode off to outline and then script that episode. So, you know, who wrote what just was sort of about, you know, we broke all those episodes together and then it was just about like who's free to now do the outline and do the script on this. Um, but it was really fun for me to get to do like events that literally take place 
within one montage song <laughs> in the musical. The song Drive is, encompasses everything from, you know, leaving Medusa's place to uh, arriving in Los Angeles. Um, and yeah, both, the, you know, the Echidna encounter at the Arch and uh, the Lotus Hotel in Vegas are both like drive-bys in the, in the musical. <laughs> that was fun. You know, the, at various points, the, the, like Echidna did have like, there were versions of the musical where like Echidna was a full scene, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I did go back to those scenes in my like drafts folder and it's like, is there anything here I can use? And I was like, oh, nope, nope, nothing. It's <laughs> totally different, totally different medium. I felt like the shaking of the zipper moment, though, in the show, I was like, that feels similar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, of course, I mean, the musical, it's, you know, our, our actress playing a kid, uh, literally shaking a bat carrier that has nothing inside of it. <laughs> a little more high tech in the Disney Plus series. <laughs> you know, what? what is in both the musical and the TV show, though, is the Kronos dream that Percy has with Luke talk yeah. talking to Kronos. And I'm, I, you've, you'd actually penned two Kronos dreams, at least in episode four and episode six. So I am curious because the Kronos dreams are actually quite different in the show from what they are in the book. How do you approach crafting a Kronos dream? Yeah, I mean, you know, part of the challenge of adapting Lightning Thief is it's a mystery. And it's a mystery that has a really complicated solution. You know, it's not just like, oh, the butler did it. It's well, like Luke did it, but Ares abetted it. And they both work working in service of Kronos to whom they each have very different relationships. Luke is, knows what Kronos wants and is, you know, pledged himself to him. Whereas Ares, you, know, you get the sense Ares is, does, isn't even aware of that, how Kronos is preying in his mind. And, the, you know, so it's, it's not just a matter of like one solution. So we resisted doing the Kronos stream in the show for a while because it did feel like, how do you have this on stage and not have it be confusing? I think that's probably one of the last things we added to the musical when we were writing the, hour, the, the two hour version, the full length version of it. And, you know, the solution was, well, like, you know what, we could just have Luke's actor talking to this voice and the audience won't know who it is because that actor is playing so many other characters. Um, you know, that was where we were looking for in the full length version, what would prompt Grover to open up and share that story of, of Talia, which is such a shameful story that it felt it needed a real reason for Grover to have to tell Percy this thing that I think Grover would kind of in some level prefer Percy not know because he sees it as his failure and he doesn't want to fail Percy he also feels grateful that Percy is, despite Grover blaming himself for the loss of Sally as well, that Percy has asked him to join him on this quest. And so, you know, we're like, well, why would Grover bring up Talia? And having Kronos in, in, the, um, in the musical, Talia is mentioned in the Kronos dream that Percy overhears. And so, you know, the sort of plot function that served was letting us get into the Talia story in a way that came organically from a question that Percy would ask, like, like who is this Talia person? And, and it seems like whatever's going on here, she's connected in some way. Um, so it sort of had a different function, whereas obviously in the show, we have multiple, in the series, we have multiple Kronos dreams, and they're each sort of like shedding a little more light on what's really going on. Um, it really was a challenge to figure out how do we do the Luke talking to Kronos without seeing Luke, and you know, what the room came up with, the solution is to to use that headmaster from uh, from Yancey, you know, to be the voice of Kronos. I did see some people after that episode aired, they're like, they cast Kronos already, but of course, if you go back and rewatch the series, you'll see. Of course, he hear, he's hearing Kronos's voice, but that's speaking through. You know, it's like in Dream Logic that translated to another like authority figure, um, the headmaster who expelled him, and and of course the you know the framing of the of the shot is so that he's talking to somebody in a chair, but you just like can't see what it is, and it's that dream thing. You're like, if I could just peer beyond that door, mm -hmm. I could see who this is. Um, and of course, the mystery that we sort of built out in the show was that you know we'd have the mislead that. 
Percy's led to believe it's Clarice when Grover, in a scene that we added for the show, gets to like interrogate Ares and you know, Detective Grover trying to figure out what Ares might be hiding. <laughs> and then the, the conclusion that, well, if Ares knows who the thief is and is covering for them, that must be because the thief is one of his children. That must be Clarice. Which is like an idea that's briefly brought up in the book, but not really dwelled on. Yeah. And it felt like just to, to keep the audience who doesn't know the book from guessing Luke so quickly, especially when an episode we're about to be reminded of Luke, um, we just like wanted that Clarice thing to feel like it could sort of keep people, even if maybe you're like, they can't possibly be naming the suspect at this point of the season. Gives you enough doubt that you're like, well, maybe, maybe it is. It does kind of make sense. She's, she's uh, you know, not always a great person. <laughs> Percy Broker's spirit too. She's uh, she's got a bone to pick. Yeah, oh, Dior's <laughs> performance in that moment when she screams—that's one of my favorite moments in the show. That like you know she's she's so cocky and confident, and yet this spear like represents like it's like her father's love—the thing her dad gave her and the thing she probably clings to—is like I am a beloved child, and to, that for Percy to break that, you know, I, I'm, I'm so glad the performance sort of captured the complexity of of that character. Yeah, she does a fantastic job. Yeah, and I'm so excited to see where where where, where they take I her in, in season two because obviously that's that is like the Clarice book. <laughs> we got a chance to talk to her at the premiere, and we were like, "Season two," and she was like, "I know, I'm ready." <laughs> I know it was such a shame that like we had such great again like in the musical we spend like you know act two uh, act one ends with them leaving camp you know in the Disney Plus series just the way the TV show is structured the episode two ends with them leaving camp. So, you know, I, I, I was so happy that, you know, that all of our camp actors are so great and, and to, you know, get to carry them forward into future seasons. Um, but yeah, you always want more of them. I'm just so curious about creating the Chrono Streams also because, or at least this specific Chrono Stream, because cr- the way that he talks to Luke is so different from the way that he talks to Percy. Because with Percy, you know, it's a lot of warnings or you know, talking to Percy about, like, what he wants, that kind of thing. And then when we see him, he's no longer this shadowy figure in a wasteland. He's, like, a very real and punishing figure speaking to Luke in that dream. Yeah. And is kind of, you know, he's kind of cruel to him and is pitting him against Percy over here. And so I'm just curious about, like, when you're building that dream, are you thinking about it, like, or when you're building Kronos dreams in general, like, are you thinking this is what Percy needs to see here of Kronos, or this is what Kronos would choose to show Percy at this point. This is what he would choose to show Luke at this point. Yeah, I mean, you know, part of it, it's like the mystery logic. It's like, that's like, we have this t- territory. We can sort of give Percy some clues about what's going on. But also, like, we know if you've, you know, read the series, you know what's been going on behind the scenes. You know things that Percy isn't privy to, which is like, Luke had the bolt, Ares caught him, you know, in- instead of being found out at that moment, you know, Kronos preyed on Ares and you know, use Ares' desire to create war between his siblings to rope Ares into that plan. But that was a backup plan. Like, Ares was never supposed to be part of that plan originally. Luke messed up, and he's in the hot seat. So that was, you know, the idea of it being a headmaster lecturing or disciplining a a, a student. You know, that is, at that point, Kronos is mad at Luke. Luke did displease him. Uh, He, you know, he, he he let himself get caught. And so even though Percy and the audience at that point aren't privy to the nuances of that, that is like the dynamic there. So it was important for us to say, well, it's not just a Kronos dream. That is, you know, Kronos communicating to Luke. And what's the thing that Kronos would want to be say to Luke? At that point, he's saying, hey, you've messed up. You know, I'm not a three strikes you out kind of guy. You know, you mess up again. There are other demigods that I, I could uh, lure to my side. And of course, that ties back to, you know, in the writers, one thing we talked a lot about in that last episode was, what does Luke want from Percy? Does he seem as a rival? 
does he see him as a potential ally and you know or does he see him as someone who he needs to be able to get out of the way and obviously the the choice we made which was a very fitting choice for me and for Daphne and for all the other Luke has a point team members in the room <laughs> yep. is that you know he he would he you know he would try to little Percy to his side he would recognize that like hey look Cronus is right there are other powerful demigods out there also despite everything I did to him I do like Percy and there is a sense where I feel like he and I are brothers in a way uh, my friendship wasn't feigned it was genuine and if I could lure him to my side if I could get him to see like hey all those things that you're furious about I'm curious about too and that's why I've done the things I've done so come join me uh, because you know I have a point um, and you know that all that comes out of like what it, who, who Luke is and what that Kronos dynamic is now I'm sad about Luke all over again <laughs> I know I'm always sad about Luke yeah what a tragedy what a tragedy <laughs> that's fun to hear that you're also on team Luke we're, we're on team Luke too <laughs> I know and, and you know that was always you know in, in, in the musical I, you know and when, it, when, when I first read the book like you know, even before I got to later books where you do get a sense of Luke's mm-hmm. motivations. You know, I do think in the on the page in The Lightning Thief, because you're getting everything from Percy's point of view, Luke really does sort of feel like a, like he's like, you know, the Scooby-Doo villain taking off the mask and revealing this like, you know, sinister <laughs> side. Um, but, you know, as you, as the books go on, Rick deepens him and, and you see that like what Percy saw as the straight up villain, you know, actually is nuanced. And even though he's doing terrible things, he's justified them to himself. And, and in fact, like, you know, as Percy, you know, discovers in in, in the, the the fifth book there's real reason to what luke is saying uh the system is broken it has to be changed and maybe tearing down the system and, and causing more destruction wasn't the way to go but there has to be a way to address these systematic injustices that are being per- perpetuated mm-hmm. from you know the the god generation onto the demigods mm-hmm. but I, I always resonate with that. yeah which you also got to bring that in with like episode six with starting to introduce these things from book five with uh may and like the whole luke yeah may hermes backstory just kind of being not not fully dropped in but like suggested <laughs> yeah there's I, there was a lot of discussion in the room about how far we could go to some of these things you know because obviously we have the benefit of all these books you know not just the first series, but Heroes of Olympus and Trials of Apollo. There's so much in the short story set in this world. There's so much material to draw from. And so, you know, sometimes it was like, okay, when is when are we pulling forward stuff because um, it's the right narrative choice for this moment? And like, you know, sometimes you want to pull forward stuff because it's cool. Like <laughs> having, you know, a, a Nico cameo in some way in, in, in The Lotus, you want to do because it's cool. Um, you know, having Hermes be there and, and, and getting a little bit of Luke's story um, was something that felt like Luke disappears from so much of the narrative. And yeah, we have that Iris call at the top of episode six, which is like another thing that I'd always try to put in the musical and just sort of never <laughs> found its place. So I was really excited to get to actually have that Iris call. Um, even though the joke of like the book's joke, it's called I am Iris messaging. <laughs> yeah. is a joke that like no one now remembers <laughs> messaging AOL. So, uh, you know, sadly that joke did not get to play. Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, I, I remember like, you know, it's like, well, like, could we have Hermes in this episode? Is that too much? How much can we talk about? I think in the first draft of that episode, like there was no discussion about May, but Annabeth, Daphne reminded us that like May collects Beanie Babies. And so something I loved was like, before they go in the casino, Annabeth like bought a Beanie Baby from like a street vendor. And like when Hermes is like refusing to help them, Annabeth just like pulls out a Beanie Baby, sets it on the table and you see, you would see Hermes' face just change and Percy would be like, what? Like a Beanie Baby? What's that? And of course her readers, you know, I think we quickly decided, we're like, I think we need to go a little farther than that. Like we kind of got to clue the audience in a little bit more. And so, you know, having 
you know, even though we don't hear the Oracle aspect of May's story, hearing that that Hermes was someone who did try to have a real, you know, relationship with his with 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 the mother of his child and with his child, only to find that led to nothing but tragedy and disaster, being a reason for the gods to say, "Oh yeah, this is why you do have to keep that distance." It's not because we're trying to be dicks. It's because when we interfere in the lives of mortals, mortals get hurt, and that's a thing that like as a child it's so hard to understand why your parent is staying away from you for your own good and yet from the god's perspective that makes total sense and to have hermes voice that perspective and reframe that to percy who would never think of it that way and say wait my dad wasn't staying away because he hates me but because he loves me um is such a flip that we it was exciting to get to sort of play you know play out that moment Hmm. Yeah. Oh man, the Beanie Baby. I'm still thinking about what that would have been. That would have been crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, it would have been. Maybe I, I feel like I was always pitching ideas that were like on the verge of silly. It was like, but like, I was like, a beanie, and she, you know, like Hermes is saying no. Annabeth reaches in her bag. What you gonna pull out? Bam on the table. It's a Beanie Baby. <laughs> that would have been incredible. That was. <laughs> But no, I I love what you did instead instead of that, of course, it's, as it's, well. I mean, I, I'll say what, it's 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 much more emotionally impactful. Yeah. It, <laughs> what um so when you found when you sort of realized that you were gonna get to write Hermes, who was probably a character since I think his first appearance is on Sea of Monsters, right? Like, how did you have yeah. a different approach to a character that you'd never really like had to think about in that way before in terms of putting like dialogue in his mouth and stuff? Yeah, well, you know, so one thing we, again, like, did, you know, in the room, I think the question whenever we were adding stuff, you know, we, we'd want to go through so many layers of vetting to make sure we weren't adding just to add, but it was the right narrative choice. And so, you know, with Hermes, like one, we were like, well, you know, is it too soon to show Hermes? So I think in like some of our initial conversations, it was like, well, you know, there's this idea that the gods can present as different aspects of themselves, or they may not necessarily be looking how they look. So it's like, well, if we don't want to be locked into casting Hermes right now, maybe Hermes doesn't look like Hermes. Maybe he's like, you know, it, it came down to like, what would Hermes be doing in the Lotus Hotel and Casino? And of course, Hermes is a god of gambling. So right away, there's that reason. But like, why this casino? And the idea that Hermes is someone who has a lot of stuff he'd love to forget, you mm -hmm. know? And even though I think that, you know, I, I don't know if that's, sometimes it's hard to remember what like makes it onto the, into the final cut and what like mm -hmm. existed only in drafts. But, you know, the idea that like Hermes chooses this casino because like, Honestly, like sometimes don't you just want to forget your troubles? We talked about the Lotus Hotel as being like akin to places like the Kit Kat Club from Cabaret. You know, these places where like, you know, the the sort of non-metaphorical version of them are like you go to a casino because like there's something sad in your life that you want to go to like a place where you can just sort of get lost in the pageantry and the lights and the colors and the gambling. And it's why people gamble in the first place. It's like you why maybe you, you want you, you there's something else you want to try to forget. Um, and so it's like, yeah, Hermes would be coming here because he has the pain of what he did to Luke and Luke's mom. So he's coming here because like, maybe it doesn't work on God the same way, but like, you know, even just like a chance to kind of like forget a little bit. So, but yeah, the initial version, he was going to be not in his Hermes incarnation, but like sort of you'd go there and the mystery is like, which person at this gambling table is Hermes? Is it like the charismatic wisecracking dealer? Is it like the guy in the fancy suit? Or is it like the, the, sh the schlub in the corner who's like, you know, maybe kind of drinking one too many. And so, you know, but I think as we went on, I was like, okay, you know what? That's, it's, it's fun to play with that, but you want someone who's going to be like making that direct emotional appeal. You know, the emotion of the scene is, is, is going to win out. And so, you know, um, having Hermes just play himself, be there, felt like the right decision for that scene. Um, but yeah, we kind of went through many different versions of like what a Hermes encounter could look like and how 
uh, how uh, visible we were able to make Hermes uh, appear as. I love the one you landed on. Um, I thought it like it's a scene every time I rewatch it, I just like think different. Like it just ta- always takes me in a different direction, which is like so fun and also so like you know it, it really hits hard. I think with the emotions in that way. Yeah, I think that you know it, it really is like I, I, sometimes you're, you're chasing an idea that seems fun, and then you're like, well, the, the most emotionally impactful version of this is the one we got to go with. And yeah, to have and obviously Lynn was great, and and you know I know he's a huge fan of of, of Percy. His you know kids are huge fans of Percy and. He's been so supportive of the musical as well. Um, so, you know, when, you know, we didn't write it with his voice in mind, but when he was cast, it just made perfect sense for <laughs> that someone who's like, feels like this like charismatic life of the party on the outside, but is going to be able to sort of sit you down and, and, and show you um, a more heartbroken side. Yeah. I keep thinking now, I'm like, I want that deleted scene of uh, Hermes singing Cabaret from Cabaret. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it, is, it is funny that like, I, you know, and I know before the episode aired, people were like, is it going to be a musical episode? It's a great idea. I wish we thought of it, but like obviously with Lynn, you kind of you, you do. Maybe in the future season, he'll get to he'll get to sing. Oh, but that's a good question, actually. What musical? What episode would be a musical episode if you had your way? <laughs> I mean, I feel like the Sirens should be a musical episode. You know, mm-hmm. it's like if you know that 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 feels like that feels like it naturally would lend itself to to music. But also, don't you kind of want in, in in you know in the in the fifth in the in, in the fifth season when everyone's you know gearing up for the Battle of New York? Don't you just want like an epic <laughs> one day more? You know, as Cam and Half Blood all gears up, cut to Olympus. They're all singing on Olympus. Yes, oh, that'd be so good. <laughs> we can do a Schmigadoon crossover, maybe. Exactly. <laughs> you know, when talking about Hermes, you know, we, one of the things we talked about in in breaking the the TV series was the first half of the season is uh, monsters, and the second half is gods. You know, so like even, you know, as we were looking at six and, you know, because, you know, five is the episode that has Ares and Hephaestus. And so it did kind of feel like, yeah, the first half, it's like, it's Mrs. Dodd, it's it's Medusa, it's the Chimera. You know, it's like they're fighting, the, the big climaxes are about monsters. And then the second half of the season, the um, the climaxes all involve gods. It's, um you know, it's Ares and Hephaestus in, in uh, episode five. It's Hermes in episode mm-hmm. six. You know, it's Hades in, in episode seven. Um, yeah. So yeah, I did feel like the season kind of split into like episodes where they fight gods or monsters and episodes where they confront gods yeah. as, as Percy sort of becomes more enmeshed in this godly family. Mm. Since um, now it's been announced that you're not going to be a part of season two, um, but although congratulations on uh, where you're headed next. Thank you. But uh, since you can kind of look at it now as more of a fan, we were wondering if you had any moments you were really looking forward to seeing adapted in the future. Wow. I mean, obviously, like everyone else, I can't wait for Nico to be introduced. He's my favorite character um, and, uh, you know, and, and such a huge fan favorite character as well. So, you know, I'm I was very excited. We pitched so many different versions of what that um, cameo in episode six could be um, a voice cameo. And they're making the most sense because you can't cast an actor too too young. But there are definitely versions where, like, I was like, maybe we just maybe you know we had versions where there was an like, actual interaction with Percy, <laughs> but you know you, you can't cast an actor too soon. So you know I think that character is the character I'm most excited to see uh, introduced down the road. We all, I always would you know would joke with Rob, the um, composer lyricist of the musical, like about like the songs we give for Nico. So um, you know maybe if they if have any suggestions for. The new suggestions for uh, you know Nico. I'm like, give Nico a song, <laughs> especially down the road. I was always pitching a love song for for uh, Nico and Will, where like n- you know just like you 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 want to hear that love duet. You mm. want to hear like Will sort of like encouraging Nico to like step out of the shadows and like join him Ooh. for like a frolic in the meadow or something. <laughs> ooh, ooh. 
move. How, how does, how does, yeah, how would that one go? Um, suddenly, when I'm in your arms, suddenly there's sunlight all around. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there we go. Amazing. We're writing it right now. <laughs> um, I also want to ask uh, if you can talk about anything on your list of things you really wanted to bring that you did. What, what, what did your list look like of things you didn't, you couldn't put in the musical that you wanted to bring into the show? And if any of them besides... Uh, the, the centaur the centaurs of the window yeah the centaurs yeah. yes did any others make it the one scene that like has been in like the, it was in an early version of the musical it was in an early version of the script for uh, episode four and you know if i ever adapt lightning thief in some other medium i don't know virtual reality or something i'm going to try to get <laughs> in again is uh, um i've al- i always wanted a scene because once you can leave percy's perspective to go back to camp and to see like what how how things are at camp as the gods are encouraging their children to pick sides. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a cut song that we released on an album of cut songs for the musical called Pick a Side, which was like a song, a chance to like, it would have been the act two opener where you'd go back to camp and see Luke and Selena and and Chiron and, and all our camp characters, you know, and, and dealing with the fact that like, there's this impending war on the horizon, feeling this pressure to like, you know, the, the fights are breaking out as, as some of the cabins are against each other. So that was something that was in an early version of the script for, for four. Um, and, it, you know, I think it felt like we just left camp, so it didn't feel, like, as fun to go back to camp. But I always loved the idea of, like, what's going on back at camp while this quest is happening. So um, maybe if I ever adapt the Lightning Thief for a third time in a third medium, uh, I'll be able to get that back in. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. The VR version. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In, in some medium that, like, is to be, you know, it, it has yet to be discovered in the future. Right. I like VR. Maybe maybe RPG. Maybe maybe video game. Oh, yeah. There we go. Oh, yeah. 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 The video game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A little, little camp side quest. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Joe. This has been really fun. This is so much fun. Yeah. We can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks. Yeah, I can't announce it yet, but I will say that it is weirdly a sea of monsters adjacent. So, um, <laughs> you know, uh, I'll, I'll be, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's uh, yeah. Well, I'll announce it sooner or later. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. Next time... We have another very exciting little surprise for y'all. If you're interested in potentially getting more advanced notice about people we may or may not be having on the podcast or maybe even wanting to contribute questions to those, um, you can actually now do so on our Patreon. Yeah, I've been making posts up there that are, you know, polls about what comes next and letting everyone know what guest is up next so that people can send in their questions. Also, if you either don't want to or are not in a position to support us on Patreon, recommending us to a friend, leaving a rating or review also really helps us out, and it's really great. Um, we love hearing from y'all in any way, shape, or form. Um, we're also still doing a wrap-up eventually of Percy Jackson Season 1. Um, so if you want to leave us a question or analysis, you can do so either by leaving a comment on Spotify, by reaching out to us on any of our social media platforms, um, we're at PJOPod on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter, or by emailing us at monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com. On all of those social media websites, you can also find our link tree, which will also take you to our website, um, and our merch shop on Redbubble if you would like to purchase any of our merch designed by Phoebe, who is amazingly talented and uh, makes really cool designs. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and while we're here, thank you to all of our patrons, RK. Window Wells, Emily Ann Bonnie, Roman Consul, Latino Kaya, 
Patty VCK, Bethany from Public Works, Sydney Fox, Joke, Reina Avila Ramirez Ariano, Charlie McNeil, Bronte Lebo, Chief and Plays, Robert Gamer, Kels, Kari, Leila Hussein, Mason Bowman, Casey Cassidy, Evelyn Zamudio, Kelsey Young, and Busy Cat. Thank you all very much. All right. Well, see you next time. <laughs> Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.